Hi, and welcome to Talking Teachers. My name is Jane Hunter. I'm hosting this podcast series with my colleague and friend, Don Carter. Together, we've both worked in the field of Australian education for decades as parents, as teachers and academics. We believe this is a time of both opportunity and crisis in our education system. So in this series, we've gathered some of the most interesting and influential thinkers to work through how we can serve our schools better. We hope you enjoy it. You'll find details on how to contact us at the end of this episode. Hi, Jane. It's the first episode of our Talking Teachers podcast. And who better to kick things off than former New South Wales Minister for Education, Adrian Pigley? That's right, Don. We will be talking about tackling change in education, which is no easy matter. Professor Adrian Pickley has been a champion of change during his six years as New South Wales Minister. He was also a big supporter of the Gonski reforms, and for a number of years, he was the director of the Gonski Institute at UNSW. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks very much, Don and Jane. Thanks for having me. It is a Fascinating subject, always uh, has been and I'm sure always will be. Adrian, I'd like to kick off this very first podcast by asking you a question about your most memorable achievements. But before I do that, I wanted to let you know that a feature of this podcast series is what we call the 30-second rant. So at the end of the interview, we're going to give you just 30 seconds where you can talk about any issue you'd like to. So let's get started. What were your most memorable achievements? So I would say there's there's three things. Two were, were reforms. The school funding reform obviously... Uh, I think was significant for New South Wales and significant nationally. And I was really pleased to be able to play, I think, an important part there. It was important reform. It was certainly extra dollars. But even more importantly than the dollars was a real focus on equity groups. You know, my particular interest in rural and remote New South Wales, when, when I was first shown the chart about which schools were going to benefit the most from the Gonski school funding reforms, and it showed that as, certainly at a percentage level, rural and regional were going to benefit the most, and then Western Sydney and Southwestern Sydney, and that really convinced me about the importance of that. It was a challenging few years, but but fascinating at a policy and at a political level. It was a Labor government in Canberra. We were a conservative or a coalition government in New South Wales. It just gave me a lot of satisfaction to be able to be part of achieving a reform that was going to benefit students so much, but also, you know, I think quite sort of nation building in in that sense. The second one was around great teaching inspired learning, around this whole issue around uh, quality teaching. And as as the academics and others were saying to me, because I also spent two years as the shadow minister for education. So I had a a build up, a lead up time before I became minister, which not everyone gets when they're a minister, but it was really important to it even understand the acronyms in, in education before you start in the job. But everybody talked about the importance of quality teaching, but what did it mean? And if you were a government or a, a system leader, what do you do to support or, or improve quality teaching? The term quality teaching, kind of what does it, I used to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? What do you, what, and what can you do to improve it or, or, or sustain it? 
that's when we sent the head of the Board of Studies and uh, the head of the department away to look at what are the actions you can do to, to improve it. And, you know, again, like most things, not a silver bullet, but a series of reforms. And I think they were, they were important. And then third thing really is the thing that I'm proudest of was the feedback that I got from schools after a number of years. Schools and from the Catholic, the independent and the government system to say that whilst, whilst um, I was minister and Michelle Brunnages was the secretary of the department, that we, we managed to get the whole education system moving in one direction, that you know, we worked closely between the government system, the independent and Catholic systems. We worked with universities and the Board of Studies. Everybody kind of seemed to be moving in the same direction in, in education, well, I would, hopefully in a positive direction. But I think that's, I think, an important achievement when, when everybody's working together for the benefit of students and there wasn't, there wasn't any conflict between the sectors. Oh, sorry, not no conflict, but there was less conflict between the sectors. Everybody was moving in the same direction. Why was that, Adrian? Why was there less conflict at that particular time between um, the stakeholders? So I think it's because we we listened to all of the stakeholders very closely. We did a lot of consultation, a lot of communication. So before we made, made any announcements about anything, even if we knew stakeholders weren't going to be happy, they didn't learn about it when they read it in the newspaper. So, I mean, we did things that the unions didn't like. We did things that the non-government sector didn't like. We did things the department didn't like either. But as a government and as a minister in our office, we, we always informed, we tried to inform them before it happened. So there was a lot of trust and we spent a lot of time building up that trust so that actually as the years went by, we could do things and push the envelope a bit further because the stakeholders trusted that we weren't we weren't doing things for ideological reasons or we weren't doing things for sort of nefarious reasons. Everything we were doing, we were trying to do for the benefit of students. So they would trust us to push those things a little bit further. You've mentioned trust, Adrian. You've mentioned the New South Wales Department of Education. There's the Federal Department. You've mentioned a range of stakeholders. But who holds the power in education? That's a good question. I think over a long period, it's, it's the education um, bureaucracies that do because they're, they're very big players in, in education. So can, the Commonwealth Department and state departments, uh, I mean, you know, the state departments run, you know, they run all the schools, they, they employ certainly all the public schools, all the teachers, but there are other big players in here. You know, media has a big impact. Parents, and often media reflect the views of parents, sometimes a, a, a microcosm of parents. So a, an outlet like News Limited, you know, when they're splashing things on the front page of their newspapers, it does have an impact on politics. And, and this partly goes to the role of what, what's the role of the Minister for Education? And often people say, well, oh, yeah, but you weren't ever a teacher or you weren't ever a, a principal. And I don't think you need to be because it's not your role as a minister to be a representative of teachers because actually what you are is actually a representative of the community. As an elected in our Westminster system, ministers are a representative of the community of voters, of taxpayers, whatever you want to call them. It's the department's job to provide the the best advice around what's the best interests of schools. The minister's job is to actually take a step back from that and make decisions that are actually in the best interests of the community more broadly. And that's whether it's education, health, transport, police, whatever other department it might be. So that brings the minister sometimes into conflict with their own departments because they are making decisions that are, well, political is the word, but 
that the uh, political arm of government sees is in the best interests of the community, as they see it, not necessarily in the best interests of government departments or schools necessarily. So that brings sometimes brings in a fair bit of conflict. Parents and the the media and and politics is a significant uh, influence in what happens in education. So, So how do we ever get to a stage where teachers believe that their professionalism is, they hold that very close to their hearts? And so how do you then match that. Um, You say that it's not important that you were a principal or a teacher because as a politician, you were representing the community. So that seems a huge tension to me. So how, how do you ever resolve that? Or is that just how it is? And is it any better now than say it was when you finished your time serving as minister in 2017? I think our system works well, where you have where, where you have ministers who are not necessarily from the sector that they're responsible for, so that we don't have you know I think it's important at a political level that you are separated from the uh, the sector that you're representing because you can come in with your own biases, having been a teacher or having been a principal, or you don't want to be seen unfavorably with your former colleagues, and that's a challenge as well because as a minister, you do have to make difficult decisions. You do have to cut budgets sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, You do have to make decisions around changes to the way performance is managed in education. And if you've been there and you've got lots of friends and your former colleagues uh, where your decisions are making an impact, it can be very difficult. We made difficult decisions around some of those things, including budgets, and they just had to be made. And And I think sometimes coming from outside the sector makes that a little bit easier. Adrian, you're a part of a New South Wales coalition government and you were dealing with a federal Labor government. What was that like? When I first became a minister, the government in Canberra was a Labor government. So Peter Garrett was the minister and then Bill Shorten after him. And I found that dealing with the Labor government was in many ways easier than dealing with a coalition government when, uh, when the Abbott government was elected because at a political level, and, and this is the joke in politics too, you know, you, it's not the people who sit opposite you you should be worried about, it's the people who sit behind you. <laughs> when you know that your opponents, your, your opponents with each other, you know exactly where you stand, whereas on your own side sometimes you don't know who, exactly who your opponent is. Mm-hmm. But look, I, I found that they were very, dealing with the Labor government was, was very professional. I, I've, I found sometimes dealing with the coalition in Canberra was a bit more challenging and, and sometimes a little bit more a little bit more superficial. I mean, we dealt with the government, the Labor government during the whole Gonski thing. So there was a lot of interaction, but I always found it be very professional. And we were both trying to achieve a, a big sort of national policy outcome. And then when when the coalition got elected, there was some attempts to unwind Gonski a little bit. So maybe that's why it was a bit more challenging because I, I, I suppose in Canberra, they thought because we're both coalition governments that we should just do whatever the coalition in Canberra wanted us to do. And we didn't think that was the right thing for for New South Wales. I think there's a lot of talk around whether or not we should have bipartisan views on education. And you've just touched on the fact that although you were a member of the coalition, you found very favourable commentary, interactions with your Labor counterparts during the time that you were education minister. So... 
Do you think that we actually need to move away from the three and four year electoral cycle as far as education goes? I mean, when there's a new state government, when there's a new federal government, we have this big change up. And how reform takes so long in education. And I'm sure that most of us who've been in the game for a long time, you know, figures around 10 years to make any major sustained changes. So do we need to have a bipartisan agreement around education? I don't think that's achievable. And I don't think it's necessarily a good idea either. The tension of you know, I know politics when you see it on the news on the news can look very ugly, the the arguments, the debate, but it's actually constructive to have that kind of tension. You do want ideas tested um, and challenged. I'm not sure that the changes to the gone, to the to school funding might have happened if there wasn't that tension between political parties. Mm. I mean Labor wanted to do something that was going to be kind of groundbreaking in that education space. That's why they commissioned David Gonski to do the work and then they put the money forward. I'm not sure that if there had been this sort of peace agreement between the two parties over education, that that might have even eventuated. So it might make things calmer, but I don't think it necessarily makes things better. I think you want that tension. But what you need is patience and political parties don't necessarily have patience and the public doesn't necessarily have patience. And this is where this sort of public and politics comes into play. And I mean, literally, it's, I mean, what's in the newspapers or on television, but it's local, it's um, constituents going into MPs' offices and going, hey, you know, the school system's no good, you need to do something, you need to change it all radically. You know, that's the pressure that politicians get put under. And that's why sometimes, you know, these changes occur. But, But you need patience in the same way you know, when, when the school funding started to change sort of post-Gonski, people were saying, oh, look, you know, we've spent this money and there's no change after a year. And I used to say, well, you know, when they built the Northwest Metro train line, it took 10 years. But after the first year of building it, people didn't say, well, the Metro is no good because there's no passengers on it, right? Because the, it needed the time to be finished before it was actually effective. But they don't have that same patience when it comes to social policy like education, whether it's funding or changes to the curriculum or whatever it is. Uh, it takes time and, and, the, and the public need to have patience. One issue that's been um, quite big in the media recently is the teacher shortage. Now, this is not just limited to Australia. It's international. Adrian, in your view, what's caused it and what can be done about it? Yes, there's no, no doubt a teacher, teacher shortage and a distribution problem. So some schools don't have any trouble getting applicants for jobs. Other schools have a lot of difficulty. I think now there are more more schools that have difficulty than, than maybe even a few years ago. But the other thing to say is there's also shortages in other areas, right? So in, in nursing, in, 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 lots of, in lots of areas. So this staff shortage and, and recruitment problem is not unique to, to education. There's no silver bullet, that's for sure. It is around the experience that teachers have in the workplace. And Jane, you mentioned it before, you know, teachers take their professionalism very seriously and, and so they should. But what seems to have happened in recent years is there's, there, are, there are more and more constraints on how you can actually use that professionalism. And that just turns people off. Any, in any job, people want to be able to use their own intuition and their own skills and to do their job. But if you're constantly told you've got to do it this way, you've got to do it that way, you've got to, all this reporting, all this admin, etc. It takes the joy out of the, the role. Now, I've never been a teacher, but I'm just reflecting what lots and lots of teachers have told me. 
I think one of the problems here is, you know, this collection of data. So collecting data, this is this problem that collecting data, sometimes you can turn a good idea into a really bad idea when you try and expand on it. So, you know, collecting a bit of data is really good. And then say, right, that's really great. It'll be even better if we click even more data and you reach this kind of tipping point where it becomes uh, a negative. So I, I think those are the kinds of things that now to now drive teachers nuts. You know, some, the accreditation, some oversight is really good. So even more oversight should be even better, but it just becomes debilitating. And I think that's part of the employee value proposition problem that teaching has. Adrian, you, you mentioned the, the word intuition, and I was really interested to hear you say that because I believe in teaching, there is a lot of intuition on the part of the teacher. This is about relationships in the classroom, etc., and it's complex, and it's not just a numbers game, a data game, as you've pointed out. But when you were minister, weren't you the minister who introduced the three band fives and the NAPLAN requirements from, for year nine? So yeah. h- how do you reconcile the two? Oh, the, the two are completely reconcilable, in, in my opinion. I mean, what we were trying to do there is actually motivate students to give NAPLAN some purpose. Because so much of the political rhetoric is around NAPLAN results, PISA and TIMS results, part of the problem was kids just don't take, don't take NAPLAN seriously, certainly not in year nine, from all of the feedback that I ever had. I mean, we, we talked to a class of year nines once about this requirement and a kid up the back said, oh, all they're trying to do is make us work harder. And I went, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> and it, interestingly, it jumped. The, the, the one year it came into effect before my uh, successor got rid of it, mm. and I've spoken to Rob Stokes about this before, but <laughs> it jumped year nine results by about 25% in one year, right? Now, did they know more? Probably not, but they just took the test more seriously now, again, that, that jumped NAPLAN results by 25%. But the, but the Sydney Morning Herald, et cetera, couldn't wait to... They were just all over it and wanted to get rid of it. Yet, a month before, they were talking about how poorly our NAPLAN results... How poor our NAPLAN results were. So you kind of can't have one, one without the other. But, you know, I don't think it affects... Wouldn't affect the intuition or, the, or the, those interpersonal skills that you have as a, as a teacher... I would think most teachers want to have students more motivated. And if that increases the motivation of students, then I think, you know, that that's not a bad thing. A lot of very important points there, Adrian. As teacher education researchers, not only Don and I, but my our colleagues work in the policy space and They work in the policy space through the research and evidence that they gather with teachers, principals, associations and so on. But it so often seems that politicians are not really interested in the research and evidence space. I mean, not unilaterally, but it seems that if it's not in a marginal seat, for example, and the research evidence is saying one thing, and I've actually seen this from the inside myself, that policy direction will be supported with really solid evidence will be completely overlooked because it's not in the interests of the marginal seat gain. You know, why is it that research evidence from teacher education academics from our big research association that we have in Australia, AARE, for example, is often given such scant regard? I don't know that that's quite right. I mean, a minister's office should not be a policy-generating organisation. 
ideas can originate from there, but it certainly shouldn't be all driven out of ministers. That's when it gets very dangerous. And I've said before, you know, the press release is the biggest threat to good education policy because, yeah, it sounds good. It's, it's a marginal seat thing or it's, you know, let's give everybody a computer. You know, even the BER, remember the BER, you know, it was had to be iconic, iconic buildings because you could go and take a photo in every marginal seat with the new, with the new building and the new opening, yet they wouldn't fix an old toilet because that wasn't iconic enough. You're absolutely right. At a political level, and the things that get announced in press releases are not the unsexy policy things that researchers might might be kind of focused on. My experience with government departments, they do they do look at the research. When when we did the great teaching inspired learning, one of the first things that they produced for the department and for the minister's office was a, a literature review around what you know what the evidence is saying. They do use it, but it's not necessarily the subject of things that. Um, ministers or premiers or prime ministers might announce because it's often, especially in social policy, it's not necessarily newsworthy, but it's important policy change. Speaking of which, in March this year, we have a New South Wales election. There might be a change of government, therefore a change of minister. If the current government stays and the current minister stays, what would you advise to that minister? Any minister who would be willing has has ever been willing to take my advice. <laughs> my my advice has always been speak to schools directly. Don't believe everything the department or stakeholders tell you, because sometimes they're wrong and and they come from their own perspective. And I only speak from my own experience. The best thing I ever did when I was minister was when I used to go and visit schools. What what, what when I started when I used to go and visit schools, the principal would take me for a look around and show me all the the new this, the new that. I even got shown the, the the little cupboard where they put all the computer cabling in one time, and I, which was look really wonderful, and the school and the, they were very proud of their schools. But you know, I really started thinking, really, is that a really valuable use of my time? And I used to used to still do it, but instead, what I'd do is I'd ask the department to get me a dozen principals from the neighbouring schools. We might have a look at the school and then say, right, let's spend an hour in the library with a dozen principals, no one from the department. And just sit down and listen to what principals are saying. And it was absolutely invaluable because they would be very frank about what's working, what's not working, what they need, the vibe of, <laughs> of, of education. And I, and I learned a lot at those kinds of things. And I've always said to ministers, you should do, you should do that. Get that direct feedback and triangulate every bit of advice that you, that you get. You know, the department will give you advice. Catholics independence will give you advice. You'll hear stuff from the tre- from Treasury. You'll hear, hear stuff from everywhere. But you've also got to triangulate it from the coalface as well. And principals are always, you know, it took them five or ten minutes to warm up. But there's also that trust thing too. Because I had the opportunity to be minister for six years, the longer I was there, the more they trusted me and the more frank their feedback would be. And it reached a point where I would sometimes know more than um, some people in the department about what was going on and I'd be able to give them the feedback. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall in those <laughs> conversations. <laughs> Look, it's that time in the uh, interview and in our exchange and, and conversation, Adrian, for you to have your rant. So you've got the floor now for 30 seconds. Yeah. Nothing works in education unless it works in the classroom. So for, I, th- I think at the moment, the pressure that teachers are under that's, teachers, that's pressure that's been driven by their own bureaucracies, whether they're independent, Catholic or government schools. There's, there's that pressure driven by their bureaucracies. It's the pressure driven by schools. So, you know, for anybody who's a, a, 
a, a future minister, whether it be New South Wales, Canberra or any other state, really get to understand what's happening in, in schools. Try and ignore the pressure from media and, and these other voices that are trying to, they're actually trying to make teaching much more difficult. Because the more a teacher loves their job, the longer they're going to stay, the better job they're going to do. Every student you talk to, when you ask them who their favourite teacher is, including my children when I ask them, they say it's the teacher who has time for them, who knows their name, who understands them as, a, as an individual. They're the teachers that are best and the most effective. And we want to have as many of them working in our schools as possible. So whatever you can do as a minister to facilitate that, work hard on that, ignore everything else. One last question. We, talk, we asked you about your achievements. You've had a few years since you've been Minister for Education. What would you have liked to have done that you didn't get to do? I wish that some of the standard setting that we had done, so whether it was some of the reforms in great teaching, inspired learning, even the requirement, the three band fives to get into teaching, I think I wish we'd pushed those a bit harder. I see some of the things that were introduced, and this would be the same for any minister, that when it came to be implemented, it got watered down. Some of the stuff got watered down. I wish we'd been a bit stricter there and said, no, 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 this is how it's going to be implemented. Now, this is what schools are saying they want. This is what we're going to give them and not allow that sometimes that inertia within bureaucracies to water it down. I, I wish I'd kind of got more involved in the, in the culture of, of the bureaucracy and, you know, worked harder at actually making that work more effectively. All right. Thanks, Adrian. I hope that doesn't keep you awake at night. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian. Really important insights and appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. My favourite topic to talk about, so uh, always happy. Don, terrific to have the opportunity to speak to Adrian and especially to hear his reflections five years or more post his time as Education Minister. And of course, he's worked at UNSW in the Gonski Institute and has really taken up a number of challenges. And uh, I was really interested to hear, you know, what his beliefs are around, you know, inspired teaching, for example, that policy and his ideas with regard to the fact that it was often, you know, that policy in its raw form had very good intentions. And I've actually heard a lot of principals say that, in essence, it was great, but so watered down in its implementation. And very sad, because I think that did make a difference at the time. What do you reflect on his thoughts, Don? What really struck me, Jane, was the degree of alignment between the New South Wales coalition government and, say, the federal Labor government. Um, They had a series of common aims and goals. Um, They talked and consulted with stakeholders um, so that there was a a unified front, which isn't always the case in education. But yes, he he did make the point that um, some of the initiatives were watered down in in their implementation, which, which is a real shame. Yeah, look, it's always, um, I guess, sort of, you know, after the fact and, you know, with a bit of distance, you can often perceive, you know, what went on and and, um, how you would do things differently. But very important contribution. So thanks so much, Don. Thank you, Jane. Very enjoyable podcast episode.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Teachers. If you'd like to know more about Don and me, you can look at the UTS website. Simply Google UTS Teacher Education, where you'll also find show notes for this podcast. The podcast was produced by William Verity for Impact Studios at UTS, which specialises in turning research into quality audio. We wish to acknowledge that the series is being recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We thank and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.